With everyone seeming to come to the office on random days, some federal managers have instituted what they call community days, designated days when everyone is required to come in. My next guest says that could do more harm than good. Longtime federal labor relations guru Bob Tobias joins me now. And I think it's well-intentioned, Bob, to get everyone in so that the bonding and purported team-building dynamics can happen when everyone's in person. But you're not so sure. I'm not, Tom. I'm really not. You know, the theory for community days, as you suggest, seems to be that employees in a hybrid workplace who come to the office many different times, many different days, really doesn't provide managers with an opportunity to create the interpersonal relationships and connections that are necessary to create a workplace community, and more importantly, a workplace community that will do creative problem solving. And so the solution seems to be for some community days, but I I just don't think it'll work. Why not? I don't think it's going to work first because a workplace relationship starts first with a leader with one person, one person at a time, and build out to a group. Calling a group together can build on individual trust, but rarely can it be the sole basis for community creation. And If I don't believe, if as an employee, I don't believe that coming to work is going to really create relationships, I'm going to be angry. And I'm going to think I've lost a full day of doing real work just to appease some person who thinks coming to work is going to create what I need. But finally, and most importantly, even if employees were not angry, a community day mandate assumes that agency leaders and managers have the skills they need to create workplace community and an environment for creative problem solving. And we know from the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that most leaders and managers don't have those skills. Yet there seems to be a fundamental perception on some people's parts, managers, and and frankly, a lot of long-time employees. I mean, the ones I've heard that would like to return to the office tend to be the senior executives, and they're not running agencies or maybe they're running small bureaus, but they just have that culture. But the fundamental thinking is something is different with everyone being hybrid or remote versus the old way. And, you know, we sometimes forget teleworking existed before the pandemic. It's got a you know good 20-year history of real activity in the federal government. But there's something fundamentally different. And how do you address that? Well, you know, I think the solution for creating workplace communities is the same now as it was pre-COVID. And that is developing leaders who are skilled at creating relationships. And I had this experience when I was teaching a group of deputy chief information officers during the COVID shutdown via Zoom. So I convened a panel of CIOs and I asked them, so what's been the most important change in your leadership style that has occurred as the result of COVID? And one CIO said, you know, I am an introvert. I am such a shy introvert. And I got to be a CIO because I was a great technician. So people came to me and ask me technical questions, and I was able to create a relationship. But when COVID occurred, it all stopped. And so I had to decide to call people individually, set up an appointment, do a Zoom call, and talk about non 
business matters. He said it was so hard to press the Zoom call and actually meet someone one-on-one and say, I'd like to talk about something other than business necessary to create those relationships. So I think the lesson for agency leaders means taking the time as it has always been to create meaningful personal relationships with each directory and ensuring on down the line that people have the skills they need to press the button and actually create relationships. We're speaking with Bob Tobias. He's a retired professor in the Key Executive Leadership Program at American University and former federal union president. But that is, you know, leader to employee or manager to employee, the hub and spoke. What about the peer-to-peer relationships that are so crucial in a workplace? I think that's also critical, Tom. But if I'm the manager who's calling those peer-to-peer relationships together in a workplace where I don't trust you as my manager, peer-to-peer relationships are not going to be created. And getting back to the question then of community days, could there be a way it could work if there was a specific purpose to the day? Say we're going to help build out the strategic plan for the next six months, or we have these three problems the organization is facing. We want everybody's brain in a room together to put up ideas and you can sort of smell the post-it notes coming. But (laughs) nevertheless, uh, I mean, could that be a, a cogent way to have these happen? Clearly, Tom, if there is a purpose for a meeting and everybody recognizes the purpose for a meeting, that will be important and people will come to the meeting. Great, but are they going to accomplish anything? Are they going to really achieve what it is they want to achieve? So it is great to come together, but are they going to achieve what they want to achieve? And without building the trust, creating the relationships, they're going to get a less valuable product they wouldn't otherwise obtain. So I think, Tom, that I'm a leader and I can mandate a community day. So I have the coercive power to require employees to come to work, but coercive power is antithetical to creating an environment where employees choose to create meaningful relationships with their manager and with each other. I wonder if a community day somewhere other than the office would work. And this takes me back to childhood days when my father was a scientist for a large corporation that had a lab. And every year that unit, and it was a couple of hundred people, I think, would have a community day at a local amusement park in this case, Kennywood, outside of Pittsburgh. And all the families would come, and all the employees, it was mostly men uh, in those days, and we'd all go to Kennywood and have a picnic. And somehow the employees, I guess themselves, the dads in those days, would maybe bond in that manner or get to know each other manner, and the families were present. What if that type of model, could that work? Well, I think that kind of a model is an important supplement to creating a relationship. It further enhances what I've already started with you as a person I'm leading. And I think it's important. But if that's all there is, it doesn't work. People go and they have fun and they stay with their family. They don't talk to other families and everybody has fun, but the fun is not directed in a way that's going to create great workplace relationships. So getting back to the deputy CIO you mentioned, and there must be a more thankless job than deputy CIO in the federal government. (laughs) It would be hard to think of what it might be, maybe deputy HR manager or something. But that person was an introvert. So it's the introvert quality that is far more operative here than the presence or telepresence of the people. 
Yeah, I think it is. But it doesn't just mean because I'm an introvert, it's difficult. I think it is a real skill that has to be honed and developed to really create a trusting workplace environment. And that's what's missing. A focus on the fundamental issue. How do I do it? How do I really start creating those relationships? Now, some people have a natural talent and a natural ability, but many do not. Bob Tobias is a retired professor in the key executive leadership program who's got lots of longtime friends. <laughs> He's also a former federal union president. As always, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. uh, And that's what I do. And I I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing 
people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Um, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They're the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this. And I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast division. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, de describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It, it, it's, it's needed uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's, it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's, it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier 
than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And, and it's all because of my faith and my belief in my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.